You probably have not heard of Gladys Dunn. She was an ordinary woman, moved to a new neighborhood, and as she was bringing in her belongings, she noticed the cutest little church right down the street. She thought to herself, I think I'm going to check out that church this Sunday. Sunday morning came, Gladys got up, walked into the church, was overwhelmed with how beautiful it was. The choir was beautiful, the organ was beautiful, and then the preaching began. And it kept going and going and going. You guys don't know what this is like. I mean, it was just unending. And she noticed some people around her start to nod off. And Gladys kind of said, no, I'm not going to be that, that lady. I'm going to keep. And she kind of dozed a little bit. She didn't realize it until she heard, amen. And she oh. and the service was over. And people started to stand a little bit sheepishly. She looked over at the person next to her. And she said, Gladys done. And he said, you and me both. Yeah. This text today almost reads like that kind of story. But when we get deeper, I think we find there is actually something very encouraging in it. This is a text that if we were in a lectionary, liturgical setting where the readings are prescribed, we'd never read this one. It's left out. And I think maybe part of that is because preachers set the lectionary and they didn't want to hear all the little comments and jokes when they got to this text. Or maybe it's just because people aren't sure what to do with it. Generally, I find that when this text comes up, it's either handled very flippantly as just kind of this throwaway, almost joke. Yeah, you preached a long time. The guy fell. He died. Or it's very much kind of used to shame people, either the preacher or the hearers. But I think in this passage, we find throughout, starting there with the beginning of the chapter, a picture of a living church, a, a living church that can inspire us to be light and salt to the community around us. And in a week where we are mourning the death of a member of our church, who again was just here with us last week, and, and, and he was old, he lived a long life, but also we anticipate the death of a young man, who many of you remember when he was baptized right here. What a horribly sad thing. What, what oppressive darkness there is in the world. And when we read in a, a passage like this, that the church can be light in that darkness, it is such a much-needed boost to our spirits. A, a message that the church of Jesus Christ is full of life, even in this passage, in the midst of death. So it begins with, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. After encouraging him, he said, farewell, and he departed from Macedonia. You remember last time in chapter 19, the uproar was that those who made their living from and whose whole lives were wrapped up in the worship of this false goddess uh, Artemis of the Ephesians had started a riot trying to push Paul, drive him out of town, or perhaps even to see him imprisoned or put to death because of how the gospel was eating into their business. Paul is not going to sit there and endure unnecessary danger to his person. They say farewell and move on. And what we see, I think, here is a slight shift. As he says farewell and moves on, we're still in that third missionary journey, but the shift we saw last time is that he's now got his eyes set on Rome. He has a few stops he wants to make before, but his eyes are set on Rome, and what we see is almost a farewell tour. As he goes around to the churches he started, and as he encourages them, 
it's probably for the last time in his mind. Now, you never know with a farewell tour. I think Kiss had like nine or something. But he's not sure, and so he takes every opportunity to give what, at least in his mind, is kind of final instructions and encouragement to these churches that he founded. And, of course, we see that this travel log sort of narrative continues in this passage. He went here and did this. He went here and did this. But it starts to take a back seat through the rest of the book to emphasis on some of these long, extended addresses of Paul's. And as we see in this text, he could give a long and extended address or sermon with no problem. In verse 3, he goes to Greece, and it's in Greece where he has some downtime because sailing is shut down for the winter, and he writes the letter to the Romans and sends it off. And as soon as he can, he continues on his way. And you know these long verses about where he went and who went with him, that list of all those people, kind of cracks me up that uh, earlier Brett was able to just say David A, because he didn't want to try and say Andrasic, because who knows how to say Andrasic? And Steve is going, how come I can't do that? And Paul, how come Paul didn't, he went with T from, <laughs> but there's all these long names. You get to these passages, it's so easy to just kind of skip through them, but I want to remind you of something this morning. It tells us in 1 Timothy that all Scripture is inspired. And the Greek word there, theomnustos, literally means God-breathed. All Scripture is God's breath, and it is useful. All of it, even the hard-to-pronounce stuff. And God does not waste his breath. Okay, now Paul might be long-winded. He might go through the night and people are falling out of windows and falling asleep. God does not waste his breath. And that's a very important message to remember as you're reading the Scripture, especially if you get up early, you've only had three sips of coffee and you're reading the Scriptures, and you go, that's a little much to uh, try and wrestle with at 6.30 a.m. Or it's late at night, you've had a hard day, you open your Bible. Remember, in fact, say it with me. God does not waste his breath. God does not waste his breath. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is useful. And so God is not wasting words here. This is anything but random information. We're not going to focus on this part of the passage, but I think it does begin to paint the picture for us of what a living and active church looks like. Because there are listed here so many people from so many areas, so many churches, so many cities that make up Paul's mission field in Asia. And these people are all going to pop up again, with a couple exceptions, in the New Testament. He's, he's laying out the roster of his missions team. We've got Gaius, we've got Tychicus, Aristarchus, Trophimus. Of course, Luke is there. Timothy is there. That's a big name. He gets two books of the Bible. It's a team thing that Paul's doing. It is a group effort. He's not the one who is in charge of everything. Rather, God is at work through his church. And I think that if back then Paul had known that we would, throughout history, name churches and cathedrals and basilica and all these things, St. Paul's, he would have pulled out what little hair tradition tells us he had. And he would have added a, a subscript to one of these books, don't do that. To him, all of these people are equally important to God's plan, equally important to bringing the gospel to those who have not yet heard it. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, he's describing this group 
when he says they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. And the reason that we see this group of people from all of these different areas is because these are representatives of the different cities, the different churches that Paul has founded, and they are coming together with the offerings that they have taken for the saints in Jerusalem, and they are all together as this sort of delegation going to deliver that offering to the church suffering and struggling there in Jerusalem. Originally, 1 Corinthians 16, we see Paul's plan was just send the delegation with the offering and let it speak for itself. This unified group of mostly Gentile churches delivering aid to this mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem, the message would have been clear. We find out later in Romans 15, Paul changes his mind. He wants to be there to make sure the message lands, to kind of interpret the theological aspect of these things. But all the same, this traveling party is itself a picture of the unity of the Church of Jesus Christ and the fact that it's not built on one person here, one pastor here, one evangelist here, but the Church is the people of God. They are the body of Christ. So this brings us to Troas and this service that went long into the night. Recognize this was a special situation. This is not usually, seemingly, how they did church, but... Paul was there, and they didn't know if they were going to see him again, and they knew that he had things to say to encourage them, to instruct them, that he would be of help to them. He was their father in the faith. And so we see here that they gather together on the first day of the week. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we had gathered together to break bread. I think we see here another aspect of a living church. Fellowship is emphasized. And that fellowship is focused on worship when gathered together. There's not going to be wasted time gathered together without some aspect of prayer, about, without thinking about, are we glorifying God? Not to say that they never had a potluck, not to say that they never went and, and drank, what, they probably had a really good coffee in that part of the world, I guess. But, but the, the idea that when we're the church, when we're gathered together, we're going to glorify God because we don't know how many opportunities we will have to do this permeates a living church. They meet on the first day of the week, which is the day of Christian worship. No longer are they following the Jewish Sabbath cycle where you meet on the last day of the week. Now they are meeting on the first day of the week. And how do you unseat a millennia-old tradition that is at the center of who you are as a people? Take something big. In this case, they meet on the first day of the week because that is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The power of the resurrection reorients them. No longer do they gather on the last day of the week as though we've toiled and toiled and now we're looking forward to someday, someday the Messiah will come. Now he's come, he's died and risen again, he's conquered sin and death and Satan, and so on the first day we rest and worship together and then we walk ahead from there. This is a big deal in the uh, ancient world, and it caused a lot of trouble. Now, there, there's enough here to, to change from a, an old view of law to a new view of grace, and there is difficulty in doing so. Because in the ancient world, there was no such thing as the weekend. Right? You say, well, you used to meet on Saturday, now you meet on Sunday. Either way, it's a weekend. You know, just sleep in a little bit, roll into church with your Starbucks in your hand. No, there's no, there's no weekend. 
And so even if they were in a very religious situation where everyone took the Sabbath off, they still have to work on Sunday. It's a work day. And so they gather when they can. And so when we find them able to gather here is on the evening. After a long day of work, people gather together for what has historically been called the means of grace in Protestant churches. The word of God, preaching, teaching, exhorting, and the sacraments, namely the bread and the cup. They're together to break bread. And the room was seemingly packed to the point where people are out on window ledges. It's hard to get people to do this today, to meet for a midweek service. It is. It's hard to get people after a long day of work to come together for worship. I mean, we have a midweek service uh, the first Wednesday of every month. It's well attended, and it's a wonderful time. I've, I've never said, okay, you know what? Why don't you give up your seat and sit in the windowsill? That's never been an issue. We have a slightly different or a very different view of worship. John MacArthur comments thus, The problem in the early church wasn't how to get people to come. It was how to get them to go home. And this has been the characteristic of every period of reformation and revival in the history of the church. You know that John Calvin preached every day for hours, day after day after day, year after year after year, and so did Martin Luther. And it was out of that great day of, Reform, uh, of the Reformation that revival was spawned. That's been the history of the church. Great men of God preached day after day after day in certain cities, and great revivals broke out, and people came, and they learned. There was just a hunger, a hunger for the word, a hunger for the sacraments, a hunger for the fellowship, to be with the church. We don't have time for that today because we're too busy, except... I know a lot of people who watched all of Stranger Things season three in like three days, right? Binge watching wouldn't be a thing if we really didn't have time. I'm not up here saying you're all to blame and I'm holy. I am in the same way tempted to say I don't have time for extended study. I don't have time to, to open God's word and read three or four chapters a day. And yet Netflix, you look at my history, you'll go, oh, you've got some time. John Piper has this great quote. The, the real use of Twitter and Facebook on the last day will be to prove that prayerlessness was not because of lack of time. Where we can binge watch, but oh, if the service goes over 20 minutes, I am irate. There is a spiritual problem. Even before Netflix was piping into our homes, I remember the youth group, uh, we, we gathered at Dave's house. I think, Valerie, you were conveniently absent that day. We watched all the Star Wars movies. There were only six back then, all in one night. We were, we were like, we're going all night. They all fell asleep. I, I mean, Will, was, Will Pruitt, he was bragging, I'm going to last. Nope. But they were willing to at least try. We see that same kind of zeal here in the church where they say, let's gather in the evening. Paul will be there. When's it end? Who knows? Not when someone falls out of a window and dies. The reason that Sunday is even part of the weekend to begin with is because church was such a widespread practice when the five-day work week was established that it only made sense to make that one of the days off. But now people, ironically, will say, well, I don't want to really eat into my weekend, so maybe I don't attend to church this week. A living church cannot be a place where people complain about attending corporate worship. Come back in the evening? I already did church this week. 
Now, what I've been so inspired by is our men's group. We were meeting. I said, let's meet the first and third Sunday of every month. I thought, that's plenty. And then I started getting feedback, like, that's not a great schedule. Okay, once a month? No, no, no. How about every week? How about if you don't want to lead it on the second and the fourth? Steve says, we'll, we'll meet at my house. We'll open God's Word. A zeal, a desire to come together and study. And that, to me, I said, wow, I need, I need to be around you because that's contagious. I need to catch that and re-catch that. And we all need to re-catch it. And it's wonderful when we gather together, these communicable things spread around, this zeal for the Word of God. You know, during the Middle Ages, it was believed that time spent in worship was free time. And I don't mean that in the sense where people were just doing whatever they wanted, free time. No, they thought that it didn't count against the length of your life. So maybe you spend two hours in worship, but when you left, you weren't actually two hours older. You're going to live two hours longer than you would have. Now, that's not true, but it is the opposite of how people spend time with God these days. I, myself, even, when I look at my schedule and I think I need to spend time in prayer and in the Word, think of it as spent time. Lost time. Not wasted time, but still lost time. What is it? It's found time. It's time when I am doing one of the things that most manifests the reason I was created, to glorify God and these guys are learning that, right? All right, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And in Troas, they did this. You know, I, I hear people sometimes will say, and I, I've, I've thought the same lines, I like, I like real early service. That way I have the whole rest of the day. I have it. It's the Lord's day. You realize He has it, right? That's the point. Well, in Troas, He had the day. They said, we're going to gather. He had the night as well. Paul spoke until midnight before the incident took place. Now, I'm trying not to be flippant, but I have to tell you what Eutychus means. Does anyone know? The name Eutychus means <laughs> lucky or fortunate. Yeah. Every once in a while, I think I'd like to have a Bible where all the names are translated instead of transliterated. Now, there was a young man named Lucky sitting in the windowsill and fell asleep and fell down to his death. Now, this was probably a slave name. It was a very common name amongst freedmen. There was a thing where masters would nickname or, or rename their slaves based on their hopes for them. And, and fortunate or lucky was a, a very common one. The Greek calling him a young man, he's probably a teenager. He's maybe not much older than these guys here, actually, but he certainly would have been working. And, you know, when we're not sure what to do with this passage, I think it's a shame that the solution is so often to use it for shame. You see it used against preachers who might be long-winded, right? Oh, man, you're going to kill somebody. You preach too long. <laughs> it's happened before. There's precedent in the Bible. I think of George Whitefield saying, to preach more than half an hour, a man should be an angel himself or have angels for hearers. Or more often, because it's the preacher setting the agenda, the opposite happens. There's shame on Eutychus and everyone like him. He becomes this picture of someone who thought he was safe in the upper room. And here he is in the light. There's many lamps. And he's saying, I'm safe. I'm in the upper room. I'm in the light. But because he doesn't watch and keep watch and pray, he falls away and dies. That's a not unprecedented way to look at these things. The Dead Sea Scrolls tells us in the Qumran community, if you fell asleep during worship, you could be kicked right out. You're out on your ear. You're no longer part of the group. But that, I don't believe, is anywhere near what Luke intends to convey here. And listen, if you yawn when I'm preaching, 
yeah, I'm going to make eye contact with you for a few seconds because I think it's funny, but you're not going to offend me. If, if you're going to fall asleep for a second, you're not going to offend me. I, I, I've grown in my, there was a time when my pride would have made me, oh, I can't believe this person's here nodding off. I remember, I was fairly new here, it's probably 2009 or so, Calvin Harshman was sitting right there, teenage Calvin Harshman, and he was starting to nod off, and I thought I'd be funny, and I crept up to him, and I went, boom, with my Bible right in his face, and <laughs> immediately I realized, I just humiliated this kid, and I felt horrible, and I apologized, but the idea that he didn't have to be here. Maybe he was up late last night and he still said, I'm going to go to church. He came to church. He wanted to worship. He tried to stay awake. He wasn't planning on catching a nap and then got grief for it. It really kind of opened my eyes to the fact, I'd rather have you here for worship, not off once or twice, than simply saying, hey, there's no room in my life for corporate worship this week. I know there are people who are on medications that maybe make them a little drowsy. There are people who have insomnia. I can relate to that. I'd rather have you here, because when we're together, we're together, whatever we're doing. Shame should have no place in this passage. And, you know, the other way we deal with it, with humor, I have, I've done this myself. Once in a while, I'll say, that guy who fell asleep, fell out the window and died, he got what he had coming, ha-ha. But then I've actually heard this passage taught in that way as a cautionary tale, like the way the Holy Spirit zapped Ananias and Sapphira and struck them dead because they were guilty. The same sort of thing happened to this guy. No. And I'll tell you, we have to thrust ourselves back into the text, right? Don't pull the text up into our present lives. And when you thrust yourself back into that late night worship service and think about that moment, I guarantee it was anything but funny. This is a young man who falls out of a window. There's that moment undoubtedly when someone reaches for him and isn't close enough or quick enough and he falls and they hear him land and the shriek and his family is first down the stairs, and down they go two flights to the ground to find that he is dead. And they knew he would be dead. I just heard that Dave went up on a ladder to the third story over here and replaced some screens. And I got anxiety picturing it. Also, was anyone holding the ladder? Don't do that. We need you, Dave. Because if you fall off, I would never go up there. Ten men could say, go up that ladder, I'll fight the ten men. I don't care. You fall from the third story, you're, you're dead. That's, it would be a miracle if you, in fact, there was, not that long ago, uh, somebody, I think, probably demon-possessed in the Mall of America, grabbed a little boy and tossed him off the balcony in a third story. And it was national news first because that was so horrific, but then because he survived. And they said, basically, it looked like he fell off a bike, not off the third story. What a miracle that was. Well, here we see at least as great a miracle, although certainly he was dead. Now, before we get to whether or not he was dead, dead, because there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead, I think we need to ask the question, how did this even happen? And the answer is that rather than being a punchline or some bad example for us, Eutychus was a model believer. After a long day of work, he still came to worship to break bread. He tried to stay awake. He stayed even when the preacher went to midnight. And he started to feel tired. Now, they were gathered in what was called an insula, sort of apartment building, multiple stories tall. They were in more populated areas of the empire at the time. The rooms were generally cramped and dark. 
and lit with these oil lamps. And they burned this sort of dirty, low-grade olive oil that didn't smell great and didn't burn real clean. And, of course, it's mentioned here by Luke that there were many lamps in that room. I think part of this is that many lamps burning produced fumes that probably had an effect on this young man. Not to mention producing heat. And when a small room is packed with people, all of whom insist on exhaling every other breath, it gets hot, even without a bunch of open flames. You've ever been, you've ever been in a church that didn't have air conditioning? Well, this one didn't until like 2007, right? It can get, you can be in an oven. Uh, the church I grew up in, Essexville Baptist, the church I went to in Grand Rapids, Burton Baptist. Burton Baptist, there was no air conditioning. It was, it was like a, a crazy oven in there. And then on these little deals, they had mounted regular fans, oscillating fans, to blow the hot air around. But somehow you'd get so hot and so sleepy, and as those things were going, it was like, it was like when your mom would pet your hair until you fell asleep when you were sick. It had that effect. Add to that the soft flicker of these lamps. Of course, of course he gave in to sleep. He didn't try to. It was an accident. And, and of course, he tried hard not to. I mean, what, what do you do when you're driving and you feel like you're about to nod off? Crack the window, right? Let the cool breeze blow in your face. That's what he tried to do. He went out to the window, and there he thought maybe the cool air would revive him. And yet... He, quote, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Again, I know none of you can relate to this, but try, try. Now, with the insula, it probably is a window that juts out over the Roman road. So he's falling onto pavement. Pavement that's so well made, it's still there in most cases. Now, was he dead? The text tells us they picked him up dead. But then Paul says, don't worry, his life is still in him, or it's sometimes translated, don't worry, he's still alive. And many have suggested then, oh, no, no, they thought he was dead, but he wasn't. My boy was dead, okay? I know this, first of all, because Luke has switched back from they to we. There was a doctor there, pronounced him dead, wrote down, dead. Not to mention that not only was Luke writing, but the Holy Spirit with him. If the scriptures say he was dead, he was dead. If you have a note at the bottom of your Bible that says maybe he was just thought to be dead, scratch it out, because that's nonsense. And it minimizes what God did here. But then Paul picks him up and says, don't worry, his life is in him. He's alive. It's a miracle. Remember back in chapter 9, Peter raised Tabitha from the dead. Now Paul does it, and he does it in a very kind of Old Testament prophet way. You, you'll remember uh, Elijah and Elisha raising young men from the dead. The King James here says, Paul fell upon him and embracing him said, do not trouble yourself. So, so he falls on him and embraces him. It makes me think about 1 Kings 17, that story. Remember the widow of Zarephath, uh, Elijah's living in her home, and then her son dies. And she turns on him. Is this why you came into my house? So remind me of my sin. And Elijah cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. In the same way, Paul wraps himself, almost giving of himself. We think of the healing power coming from Jesus, even from the hem of his garment. Well, with 
with Paul, it takes more. He embraces him, and he heals him. He revives him. Now, I think the craziest part of this whole deal is that they didn't, they didn't cancel the service at that point. They didn't go, well, that was close. Everyone go get some sleep. Nope. All right, that's over. Back upstairs, and Paul preaches more until daybreak. He knew the time was precious. So even though it was late at night, and it was the night before a journey, and even though a guy had died and been raised from the dead in the middle of this, he was intent on making the most of the time that the church had together to worship and to instruct and to build up the faith of the Christians. And what's more, Eutychus is back listening. And the text does not come right out and tell us this, but I would bet green money he sat nowhere near the window and did not doze off again that night. A living church we see here is full of the power of the Holy Spirit, the kind of resurrection power that can take the day that was established from the very beginning of God's people and say, we're going to meet and worship now on a different day. Not the last day of the week, but the first. The power in this is so great. Acknowledging the power of the Holy Spirit is what happens in a living church. In Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, I pray that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I think he can check off on that on his to-do list. Clearly, Paul knows the power of the resurrection. I think of the words of that widow after Elijah said to her, See, your son lives. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What would have happened had that man died and then Paul had said, oh, that's a shame and moved on? Well, the gospel would not have been held up high by the the people around them. This, This new message of salvation would have been a message of death and derision. So the Holy Spirit was at work for the glory of God. Well, we have experienced this same thing. When you come across resurrection in the scriptures, don't think, wow, it's cool that that happened back then. It's, it's amazing that this has happened to us. We were talking this morning in Sunday school about the doctrine of adoption, about how unbelievable it is that we read in the scriptures, God says, I created you to follow me. Anything you want, just don't eat from that tree. And we said, this tree? And then he said, out of there, but follow me. I've laid before you life and death, blessings and cursings, so choose life that you might live. And we said, you mean don't choose death? And all the same, he pursued us yet further, wrapped his arms around us and said, do not fear, the life is in this one, and raised us spiritually from the dead and called us his sons and daughters. God who gave breath to man at the very beginning. You remember he created Adam, but he was just a a body there, a dead body really, until God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and he became a living soul. That God breathed life back into Eutychus again. Second time, reminding him and us of what was already true. What we already knew was true. God does not waste his breath. He breathes into us new life so that we will live new life. We are not to waste his breath either. And I say, of course, Eutychus went back in for the rest of the worship service. Right? Do you think he got up and said, oh, more church? It's so boring and irrelevant and there's hypocrites. No! 
He was dead a minute ago, and now he's alive. There's power in this. If we have experienced that power, we will approach a living church with expectations of approaching a living God together. Where we gather and fellowship and focus on worship, where we value the time we have together, the preaching of the word and the holy meal, the waters of baptism. Let me ask you this. You think Eutychus told anyone this story? It does make him look a little silly, but I guarantee you couldn't know Eutychus without, I can top that story, right? And you didn't, you didn't want to bother telling him your tall tale because he, he could trumpet in a moment. And when we're excited about something, when something amazing, something, something so lucky or fortunate, so Eutychus happens to us, we will tell people. When, when we want to spread good news about something, we'll tell people. I told so many people this week the good news about the Nying Myanmar restaurant. Did you hear about this? Best restaurant around. Oh, my goodness. They're in the top five in, uh, in, on Yelp, and they're Burmese food, which is so cool. We would go there with the Burmese, and sometimes me and uh, uh, Pastor Chung would go there together. And, and they're in this strip mall over here that kept getting the water shut off and the landlord was iffy and all this stuff and they thought they might have to move and then it came up for a public auction and they bought the building. I thought that's such a cool story. I told like 20 people that. I didn't tell 20 people about Jesus this week. I didn't tell 20 people that like Eutychus, I was dead and he came and picked me up and said the life is still in him and now I'm alive again with new life. I didn't tell them the amazing story of resurrection that is my story because it's really his story. You know, we sing Amazing Grace. We have pictures in there of what happens for us when we're saved. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. And those are good. They come from Scripture of Jesus walking around. I was crippled and now I walk. I, I, all of these pictures, but the ultimate is I was dead and now I'm alive. And that is the story of every believer. That is the story not just of Eutychus, but of Oliver and of Jim and of uh, everybody here. You were dead, and now you're alive. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you haven't, I urge you this morning, believe on him. He will raise you from the death of sin into new life. But if we are saved, how can we approach worship together, serving our Lord lifting up his name, gathering together to break bread, to open the word with a ho-hum attitude. Oh, it's going to eat into my weekend. My friends, a living church is full of zeal for the Lord. A living church is drawn into his word, is drawn together for prayer, for service. A living church gathers together and knows that we follow and worship and serve a God who can take us from death and bring us into life, from darkness into light, and sends us out to shine the light ourselves. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would have the zeal that the church in Troas had. That, Lord, we don't pray that you would make us less like Eutychus, but more. That we would be willing, after a hard day's work, to spend time in your word, even if we are tired. That we would come to you in prayer even when we have labored and all we want is to, to go to sleep, Lord, that we would always find time for you. We pray that we would find uh, that you are more and more of a priority in our lives because we are walking in the Spirit, following after you. That, Lord, our church would more and more be a living church. 
We don't seek for a living church the way the world defines it. Like the church in Sardis that had a reputation for being alive because of all that was going on and yet was spiritually dead. No, Lord, we want to be a living church that is focused on fellowship and worship, on loving our neighbors, on proclaiming the gospel above all else, and following you in the pages of Scripture, being sanctified and made more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.